This is Mindframe, a podcast of mind-bending science fiction. I'm Dave Moten, the author of Mindframe and the narrator of these episodes, and with me as always is my partner in crime, Brent Van Tassel, who is my producer. He's also the co-founder of the Podbelly Podcast Network, of which we are a proud member and a Podbelly original. So if you're into podcasts and you want to find some cool content, go to podbelly.com and check it out. Exciting development that we've uh, had lately, which is we've lowered the Patreon tier in order to listen to the sit-down episodes uh, down to the $1 tier. We wanted to do this because we really, in other podcasts that we do, we've done a similar maneuver and it just really added to the community. It helped us have better online conversations and it brought more people into the discussion and we really enjoyed the impact that it had on the show and we want to do the same thing with Mindframe. So if you have uh, been listening and you've thought about the sit downs. If you listened to those first ones a long time ago and liked them now for just a dollar on patreon.com slash mindframe podcast, just at the $1 a month donation, you get access to the sit down episodes. There's a sit down episode for every single regular episode that we've recorded. They usually last 45 minutes to an hour. And it's the three of us uh, talking about science fiction, talking about the show, talking about the twists and turns and so forth. So if you've been thinking about it, if you like the show and that's something that you've been kind of sitting on now, it's only a buck. So consider going in there and signing up on Patreon to get those sit down episodes and consider getting onto social media, having those conversations because we do read them all the time and we get questions that people ask and then we talk about them on the sit down shows. And uh, every so often I've even had, had one or two ideas pop up in the Facebook group and so forth where I was like, hmm, I might have to take that idea and use it in the book. So uh, we do watch and it is helpful and we think that this uh, this dollar sit down um, might inspire a little bit more of that and, and uh, that's part of why we do it. Um, I originally launched this show as a way to give out some content to people who were stuck at sit-at-home orders during COVID um, and I just wanted to give something that I had already created out to people for free. And I think that conversation helps the, the whole community. So uh, consider that. If you've got $1 to spare, then use it um, at Mindframe to get the sit downs. If you've got $3 to spare, then go buy a delicious bottle of El Yucateco hot sauce. They are our primary sponsor. We love them. Uh, they are the king of flavor. Uh, we don't uh, take them as a sponsor just to make money. We take them as a sponsor because we genuinely enjoy the product and we actually have a really good relationship with the people at El Yucateco. So if you like hot food, consider El Yucateco on your plate um, because it tastes great. And that's a horrible rhyme and I apologize for it. Um, but on this episode of Mindframe, we get into an interlude and uh, we start to uh, have another visit with our old friend Josephine Wu, who is on the empty deck of the Tehachapi. Um, the last time we saw her was through the lens of Reese Bolivar as she was getting a Psyamp implanted in her head. And now we revisit her to see uh, what has happened uh, since then. So give it a listen. I hope you enjoy. Interlude. Josephine Wu. Josephine sat on the carpet again tonight. It was a magic carpet, near as she could tell, flying through the void of space at an unknown but impressive speed. In front of her were what appeared to be two massive stars. One glowed a bluish white, and the other was orange. The orange one had a strange wobble to it, as if it was spinning impossibly fast on an axis not quite made right. 
The bright light in its belly shot with a frantic pulse that was difficult to look at. The blue one was easier on the eyes, less harsh in lumens and without that persistent, nagging wobble. But, she had to remind herself, the purpose was not to look at either one. It was to look at the nothing in between them. The dead space and all that the impossible, resourceful universe could fit in between those two fixed bodies should it choose to. Josephine sat in the center of the flying carpet, an intricately woven Persian rug that was stitched with the pattern of the Mandelbrot set over and over in a beautiful form. Something akin to a solar wind gently tossed her hair and made the edges of the flat carpet curl up like the toes of an eager lover. She was in meditative position zero, the most basic and comfortable. She was practicing a type of guided meditation, following Misty's words, though they seldom made sense to her. Every so often, the cadence of Misty's voice, the pattern of the words, would let Josephine feel herself escape into a meditative state, nudge by nudge. But it was a very difficult state to achieve in this void. The words meant nothing at first, but after so many attempts, they started to sound familiar and take on predictable patterns. Misty still took the form of Guillermo when she would visit Josephine, just as she did the first time she ever appeared the night the sender showed her the past, present, and future. In the time since then, the sender insisted Josephine call her by her name. It turned out that her name was Misty. She wryly told Josephine that the name was an old punchline and that those of her species had no names as the human mind could ever think of them. Her exact quote to Josephine was, My people using sounds to represent our name is about as realistic as a fig tree using pollen to sign a check. Then she had to explain that a check was a system of artificial money backed by a bank on a promise. Like always, the whole of the conversation never quite coalesced, but a meaning deeper than the words could still be extracted from their communication. Though she was a sender, Misty only ever sent the plans to one device to Josephine Wu. It was the Siamp. They didn't meet every night because the architecture of the cosmos didn't allow such direct mental contact at such colossal distances. But every session since then was spent training Josephine in ways to use the Siamp. Most of their successes came in the form of slight adjustments to another human's mind or perceptions. Josephine would practice on Fang when they'd meet together in the waking portion of the day. She could now summon a fog over his awareness or get him to quickly take some involuntary action at her command. It would only last for a couple of seconds, but she could make him yell or run away or drop what he was holding before he'd come back to his senses. But this, the study of the two binary stars, was quite different. Misty paced around Josephine in a circle, minding that she never stepped off the carpet, lest she fell off and into the dark void of this space they were in. Misty said, You are the one to form bond states between quarks. You are the one to forge hadrons. You are the one to change up quarks to down quarks by emitting W bosons, and you are the one to feel the charm quarks in your hands to know how it differs from the strange quark. You need to be the virtual particles that surf between atoms. You are the one to absorb the positive charge of a proton and fulfill the negative charge of an electron. Josephine listened to Misty's voice. It was still Guillermo's voice because she still took his form every time she visited. She also still insisted her form was entirely Josephine's decision, not her own, and that if she was still uncomfortable or saddened at this visage, it was up to her to change it. 
in the long line of mental states Josephine was expected to master in a rather small amount of time, this did not ever seem important enough to focus on. Josephine watched in between the two stars, and she finally saw the third star start to appear. It was a smudge at first, but gained more definition. It ended up being about a tenth the size of the red and blue stars, a faint light of an indiscernible color. Josephine willed herself not to look at it, or the others. She unfocused her eyes and looked at everything and nothing all at once. Good, Misty added, sensing some of what Josephine was doing. You are the one to see the stars. You are the one to soar in the middle space to let your body and soul expand like a bellows. You are interstellar, Josephine. Your toes to your nose, each will touch a star. You are the star in the distance. Your hand is the energy it emits. And your hand is the hand to touch the other stars. Yours is the hand to change red to blue, to initiate a wobble, to still a vibration. Josephine felt the red star grow still and felt the blue star begin to wobble in her peripheral vision. They were flipping states and behaviors. She didn't look at them, but she knew the light had changed. The virtual particles flitting between them were all suddenly agitated and entering a new state. Perhaps, as Misty would often say, a waveform was collapsing, making a hard definition manifest itself in the physical world. Now, Misty said, voice grown rigid, snapping Josephine out of the trance she was finally able to initiate. Open your eyes and strike now. Josephine went back a layer, opened her eyes. The stars were no more. The magic carpet was gone. She sat on the grand causeway of the Tehachapi. She was surrounded by six leering men. Well, one man, the most terrifying man she had ever seen. It was Manuel Washington, a.k.a. Manny, a.k.a. Washburn, a.k.a. Cash Money. He was the one who slaughtered the Ball family in Misty's vision of the Christmas past. And just now, he stood on all sides of Josephine. All six of them were dressed in slightly different, trashy clothes. All six held different blades, and all six advanced with the will to cut her, to smash her face, to make her bleed. Josephine filled her breast with fire that spawned in the base of her neck where the Siamp was now installed. The fire burned out all the oxygen and let Josephine Wu breathe smoke. She leapt to the first one and struck him in the face with the ridge of her foot, issuing so much force that his bones collapsed around her simple slipper. The next three were so fast, even she could barely take the time to notice. A punch that splintered ribs, a knee that made a spine disintegrate, an elbow that broke a neck. The fifth was met with a paring knife, belonging to the fourth just moments ago, buried to the handle right through the sternum. The sixth was at a bad angle, so she leapt to him and hit him in the midsection with a back kick. There was enough potency to launch him in the air, and she had enough smoke left in her lungs to let her leap. She bound off of the man and threw the air until she was above him, and she punched down with her mighty fist. The momentum stopped, shifted, and he went from forward to down as his body hit the edge of the fountain with a disturbing pop. Blood pooled in the water. One exhale, one motion. Josephine had done it. She took in a slow, long breath through pursed and concentrated lips, breathing normally and standing on her own solid feet, exhaling oxygen, 
now done with the smoke. Misty clapped one single clap and left her hands together in front of her face. She was covering her mouth, which was Guillermo's mouth, which was smiling. That, my friend, was perfect. You could feel it, yeah, how the stars were all one star, how the six men were all one man, how there was no space in between them or you because there is no space. Josephine added, only quarks and atoms and the perception of space. There is more space between the particles of matter than there is the particle themselves. I am the thing that lurks through the in-between. Josephine was still staring at nothing and everything. This layer of her eyes not yet adjusted away from not looking at the stars, which weren't really stars, but strange quantum elements. Ich, Misty said. Is that how I sound when I do that? Kind of, yeah, Josephine said. Note to fucking self, don't do that. It's like a physics book had sex with a televangelist. And don't ask, it was a kind of charlatan who would bilk people for their life savings using television signals and a deep, profound perversion of a lovely ancient text. Josephine was thankful that Misty had started to clarify her odd, outdated cultural references, but often, as was the case now, the clarification brought on more questions than the original comment. So what's next, Josephine asked before she was interrupted. Ah, don't ask it. The real focus needs to be on your homework for tomorrow when you wake up. Real quick, remind me of all the steps you need to take while you're awake between now and our next meeting, Misty said. Right. First, I need to start merging my work on my mind to Fang's mind. Move it to more conscious control of his muscles to feel his body through his own perception. I'll do this starting with the winter. Wake up, Misty shouted. Now, you're awake. Breathe the fire. And the dream shook and went jagged. Misty was no longer there, and she had used her remote access to the Siamp to fill Josephine's body with enough chemicals to make her panic and jolt upright in her bed. Her heart was skipping. Her skin was awash in a sudden sweat. Surrounding her bed were six tall candles on candle holders ranging from three to six feet tall. Josephine was confused, the body and mind torn between states of dreaming and waking. She was still half asleep in the mind, but her body was pulsing with life. She had barely removed herself from the magic carpet to the dream of the six men, and now she was fully conscious several layers up. But she breathed. She felt a burn at the base of her skull as the Siamp fired itself into life. The burn shot through her central nervous system to her heart and into her lungs. They burned with the fire of inaction, and she swallowed the flame. The next state for fire is smoke, and there was no difference between the two states. She tamed it, breathed the smoke, and focused it through all the spaces between atoms, all the vibrations between quarks. There was only one candle, and her hand struck it with the ridge of what she would call a karate chop as a child. The candle split as if cut by a sharp sword at the hands of an expert wielding it, and then the second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth. Her arm was extended in front of her torso, her hand still in the pose of what Fang called knife hand. She was still in bed, but there was no bed, and no hand, and no candles. There was only the vibration, the smoke in her lungs, and the interstitial space in between. Her body was a buzz. Chemicals were doing their thing on various systems in her body, flowing through her frame and erasing deficiencies. Most of this was basic human biology, but some of it she could now sense was coming from the fire in the base of her skull. 
She couldn't turn it off since she cut the candles a few hours ago. Or more accurately, she could have, but she didn't want to. She had gotten dressed in exercise gear and went for a jog around the Grand Causeway. The jog turned to a run, the run to a sprint. She didn't seem to wind, and her muscles didn't ever seem to build up toxins or lack what they needed to keep going. She knew she was thirsty and she didn't want to bother with one of the empty shops or going back to her quarters. Instead, she sat on a bench beside one of the flowing streams in the middle of the hall, cupped her hand, and drank. Fang had told her all the water here was potable, part of the hydroponic bays and drinking water for the whole ship. It tasted cool and clean, no chemicals or chlorine or anything typically found on a spaceship that had to recirculate, well, pretty much everything. Maybe the Tehachapi was a generation ship after all, meant for a century between the stars. It turned out the between was what mattered. At the bottom of the stream were pebbles, smooth and flat. They were just like the stones she would skip on a small pond near the campsite she'd visit when she was just a girl. The possibilities of skipping a stone, the physics of the thing, suddenly intrigued her. With the right angle and velocity, the thing which should sink would dance and bound off the liquid that should never support its weight. She touched one and then picked it up with her fingernails she only ever trimmed with her teeth. It was cool to the touch and felt lacquered by the endless flow of stream, time, and the second law of thermodynamics. She held it before her eyes, and the part of her that was awakened by the candles saw the stone, and more and less than it really was. It was grains of sand too stubborn to disintegrate yet. It was a mountain too weak to still impress. It was the particles and vibrations that bound it all together. It was the artifice of time. It was the space in between. Josephine touched that space and she felt a memory. The rock had a memory, something imprinted on it or within its layers. Something touched it once and Josephine backed out from the center to gain a different focus. A dog, a dog's paw touched it in a river on earth. There was a wide, deep blue sky. The dog was a black lab with a collar on it, and it was thrashing through the water in a futile attempt to catch a raft of ducks lazily kicking on the surface. Then nothing for a time, and then a machine, the thing that vibrated and sorted stones by size, and then a man in a lifting exoskeleton dumping a handful of similar stones here in this very stream at the Akunga construction docks. But how was that in this rock? There was no memory in a mineral. But just then her mind flared, a memory of a session once thought mundane but now important. It was 19 days ago. Misty was trying to coach her on how to read minds with a psyamp and went into a tangent about how the universe itself could compute. Misty said, The rock looks perfectly still, but they're quite busy. Inside a fist-sized rock you might find, say, five trillion trillion atoms? It isn't solid, but a cluster of atoms orchestrating the dance of a stone. They're passing electrons around like dance partners, creating EM fields, changing particle spins. The EM interactions alone are causing a million trillion trillion calculations per second. The rock doesn't know this, neither does the world, but it's there. When you can focus those movements and vibrations and spin states, Every stone will become your supercomputer, Josephine. They'll all talk to you, share their secrets, spill their guts. 
Their easiest memories will be the times they were touched by another conscious being. Misty was right. Josephine set the rock gently back in place, suddenly thinking that skipping the rock on the water was too intrusive. The memory of what Misty had told her was perfect and clear. There was no fog, no misinterpretation. The recollection had a crisp texture that told her it was without flaw. Another new thing brought on by the Siamp. Perfect recall. She took her hand out of the stream and drops fell, making a pattern of ripples on the surface. Vibrations and waves. Candles weren't candles. Rocks weren't rocks. So what was the water? If there was no such thing as a solid object, could the opposite be true? Could water be more or less than a liquid? After all, Josephine realized yet again, there was no surface to water, no substance, just a distance between elemental particles. She placed her hand on the surface of the water and the stream flowed around her fingers. But then she felt the space in between and cinched it close like the drawstrings of a pouch. She pulled all of its elements together, erasing the space in between. The water felt as glass. She leaned on it with all of her weight, and her hand held firm on the surface of the water, even as it lazily flowed around her fingers, doing what a liquid must do. Josephine took her shoes and socks off and stepped gently over the bench and onto the stream. She kept the vibrations closer and stepped with her foot. It was cool and soft, flowing beneath her, but it wasn't quite water. She took step after step until she was across the stream and on the other side of the Grand Causeway. Josephine had just performed her first miracle. She started to laugh a small laugh and she clapped her hands. The universe and all of its wonders were open to her like a book or the memories of a patient stone. She wanted to share all of this with Fang. They had both worked so hard for so long to make even one thing happen and now the stops on her mind fell like dominoes. She walked around the raised stream and retrieved her socks and shoes. Her feet were perfectly dry, but she enjoyed the feeling of the metal bulkheads on her skin. She went back to the quarters to make a tea and fix some breakfast. Her body was surely hungry after her run, or maybe it wasn't. She didn't even know anymore. She set her shoes and socks inside the odd membrane that acted as a front door and took the headband off of her head letting her hair flow down her back, longer than it had been since she was a teenager. She put on water to boil for some oatmeal along with the tea and then changed her clothes. She had thought about a shower, but she wasn't sweaty in spite of the run. In the closet, she grabbed her framer's robes and then suddenly hung them back in their place. The robes were black, but they didn't feel right anymore. Fang had given her one set of white robes that he said she'd don when she was finally ready. She slid them on and realized he'd forgotten to give her white slippers to go with them. That was fine. Her feet could be free. In the bedroom, she looked at the six candles. They were all cut cleanly in half. She had done that with her hand, not a blade. She wondered if her hand had become rigid and sharp, or if the candles had become flaccid and soft, or if there was a different or third option. She thought about chopping one with a knife hand right now, but she wasn't in the right state, and she knew she'd feel foolish at the action. She entered her main living quarters and moved to the window to see the stars, the real stars, passing by. But immediately in her field of view, there were no stars. Something seemed to be blocking their light. 
She traced the shape of the hole in the stars and found it was made by a black diamond in the sky with crisp lines offset against the stars. What did that mean? What could be blocking the stars out here except perhaps a ship? But no ship would be there without leaving a drive trail of some sort. The kettle started to scream on the stove, telling her states of matter were sufficiently transforming from liquid to gas. She wondered if she could do that, make the water boil. Why couldn't she? It seemed more logical than using water as a walking surface. Josephine felt electricity surge through her body, something foreign and unwelcome. She could see it arcing blue from her fingertips and flowing through her. This current of power dimmed the fire in the base of her skull and made her muscles collapse. She fell to the deck of her quarters, unable to move. A man was standing in her living quarters. He was short and well-built. In one hand, he held a modified marine vibrosaber, and in the other, he held the perfect sphere of a stun orb. That was it. She'd just been shot and stunned. The man wore a uniform that Josephine recognized. It was the uniform of one of the five sheriffs of Earth. And then she realized who this was. It was Sheriff Hilt Berhan one of the members of the WorldGov Enclave. He was casually walking over to her, aiming the stun orb down at her. He said, Josephine Wu, in the name of WorldGov, I place you under arrest. If you can speak, please tell me where Master Fang might be found. She couldn't speak, but why not? There were no muscles, only particles and vibrations and the space in between. The energy that still coursed through her body from the stun weapon was nothing but vibration as well. Couldn't she push that all away from herself? I see that, Sheriff Berhan said. Defiance in the eyes of a woman who can walk on water and use her hands like a samurai sword? No thank you. He shot her with the stun orb again, filling her core with more of the violent vibrations. And then, just to play it safe, he raised his arm and swung down on her head with the handle of the sword, knocking Josephine Wu unconscious on his mission to find Master Noah Fang. So with that, we see the hunt of Sheriff Hilt Berhan starting to come to fruition. We'll have to tune in again to see uh, what happens when he tracks down Master Noah Fang. Um, as always, if you like uh, this fiction, you can find uh, some of my other fiction in the form of 181 Pine. If you go to mindframepodcast.com and go to the, the merchandise section, we have that book. We have Zach Smith's books from the sit-down episodes. And uh, we've got T-shirts and coffee mugs and everything else, all things Mindframe. Um, you can find it there for sure. Uh, remember that you can always go to Podbelly to find other great podcasts. Um, we are a member of the Podbelly Network, as well as Art and Jacob Do America and Robots for Eyes. So those are both some really good uh, selections for you if you're looking for new podcasts to throw into your queue. Go to Podbelly and check those out. Um, remember, as I said at the top of the show, um, we are now making the sit downs uh, available for all patron levels, even at the one dollar uh, entry. So if you want to go in and throw a dollar a month at uh, at the show, a it helps us. It helps us to keep getting server space and to come up with some cool prizes that we can start shipping out and things like that. But B, it'll help you because it'll let you get all of those sit down episodes. That's a lot of content. Um, that, that you can listen to. And a lot of people, uh, there's, there's several people that talk to us online that only, um, listen to the show if they've been able to catch up on the sit downs, because they say the sit downs really kind of make the show for them. So hopefully you might find that, um, yourself. 
And uh, another way that you can support the show, if you like what you're listening to, um, is to give us a like or a share or a retweet or whatever it may be on uh, social media. That goes a really long way for any podcast that you listen to. Uh, sharing the word on social media, that word of mouth factor is something that no one can duplicate. Uh, and that really helps us out. So if you want to track us down, if you go to Facebook, you can find us at Mindframe Podcast. If Twitter is your thing, you can find us at Mindframe Pod. And if you like Instagram, we are the Mindframe Podcast. So um, thank you for giving us a listen. And as always, remember the Lariat is closing.